My name is Josh Hirsch, and I'd like to thank Rob Tarr and the entire editorial team at the JNIS for allowing us to do another one in what has turned out to be a highly popular socioeconomic series of podcasts. The podcast today is going to cover a trilogy of articles. In January of 2015, Ms. Sylvia Burwell published a commentary in the New England Journal of Medicine on what her perspective of what healthcare delivery will look like in the near and intermediate term in the United States. As we'll discover in this podcast, Ms. Burwell's perceptions are likely very important for our collective future. She was very interested in that article in defining value approaches to providing healthcare. In fact, that was in the title. We thought, and I mean all the discussants on the podcast today, that this was a very important bit of material for the JNIS readership and published an article that we called the Burwell Roadmap. In that roadmap, we defined some of these value-based approaches, which we subsequently looked at in more detailed form in articles entitled The Bundled Payments for Care Improvement Initiative and another one on accountable care organizations, what they mean for the country and for neurointerventionalists. I'm joined today by luminaries from the radiology, socioeconomic, and health policy community. Geraldine McGinty has been a discussant on a previous podcast, and she's well known to this listenership as an expert and authority on these types of topics. Geraldine remains the chair of the Economics Committee at the American College of Radiology. Greg Nicola is a neuroradiologist in Hackensack, New Jersey. Parenthetically, all three of us work together at the Ruck, and I would say I learn from the two of the discussants, the two discussants on this podcast all the time when we're talking about healthcare policy, and I'm very excited that they're joining me today to talk about these three articles. So with that, let's start with you, Geraldine. Why don't we take advantage of the fact that in 2014, we recorded a podcast on the divergent nature of the various independent boards to talk about what's the general state of affairs regarding the Affordable Care Act in mid-2015. Thanks, Josh, and thanks for the opportunity to be on this podcast. And, and I'd just like to compliment you for the way in which you have really crystallized the story of healthcare reform in this series of articles in a way that's very afford, uh, understandable for us as radiologists and, and really relevant for our, for our community. So, you know, here we are, um, almost halfway through 2015, and um, believe it or not, scarily heading into another election cycle. Healthcare reform has really now become embedded. While I don't know that we won't see another Republican attempt to repeal uh, the Affordable Care Act, I think when you look at provisions like um, you know, no ability to deny health care, no ability to uh, impose additional penalties for pre-existing conditions. I think those kinds of provisions are really now embedded into our health care delivery system. So I think that going forward, we'll be seeing efforts focused mostly on tweaking and reforming health care reform rather than repealing it. You know, we've got more people covered. On the other hand, we've got more people paying out of pocket. Um, that has some very important implications for us as radiologists. Um, and, you know, we've also very importantly seen overall healthcare spending slowing over the past few years. Now, will it pick up again as the economy accelerates and the baby boomers age? Or have we really, through a combination of healthcare reform, but also very clearly through things like the economic crisis, 
and changes in benefit design, have we really bent the cost curve? So I think at this point, um, I, I see healthcare reform as where we've over the initial hump. And I think that really now we're looking at challenges that include how do we connect quality measures to real impacts on outcomes? And how do we do that specifically for this audience? How do we do that beyond primary care? And also, if patients are spending more, how do we connect them and engage them around the kinds of behavior and lifestyle changes that they need to make to actually drive outcomes? I think that that's an excellent overview. I guess there is one uh, fly in the ointment, which is that uh, while the legislative efforts may slow down or have less of a, an ability to overturn the legislation, there are serious challenges that could arise from some Supreme Court decisions on exchanges, for example. And I guess only time will tell how uh, those things would impact, though I agree it's almost impossible to imagine that many of the provisions which patients and a variety of constituents like would come out of any future direction of healthcare independent of uh, what happens uh, with the uh, Supreme Court. You, you make an excellent point, and I think that the combination of that plus the fact that we continue to see Medicaid expansion iterate and shift where you know, states which didn't take the initial Medicaid expansion are now finding ways to do that creatively, whether it's through private insurance partnerships or other creative ways to not expand Medicaid, but really expand Medicaid. I think you're right. There's definitely, there's definitely still some tectonic shifts going on. Thank you for that, Geraldine. Uh, Greg, we uh, really quite recently achieved what historically would have been considered a dramatic milestone and indeed is an amazing development in some ways surprising uh, given the uh, state of uh, politics in Washington, D.C. with the repeal of the SGR, or I should say the permanent repeal. One of the surprising things, or perhaps it shouldn't have been surprising, as I looked at the legislation, which is called the Medicare Access and CHIP Reauthorization Act, is that things are not quite as clear as the 30-second sound bits that you would hear on TV or even read in the paper. And I just wonder if you could uh, make some comments, knowing it's a bit off topic of our papers, on the so-called macro. So macro is very interesting, and I think it goes to the point Geraldine just talked about, that the likelihood of uh, repeal of health care reform is, is, is really just not there anymore. Um, you know, maybe tenants of Obamacare will be overturned in the future, but I think the idea of converting healthcare from vo um, from volume to value is really he here to stay. And I think MACRA is a testament to that because it was bipartisan legislation, and it really provides a roadmap for future reform. Um, it, it basically breaks uh, medicine into two two limbs. You look at a fee for service limb and an alternative payment model limb. And it keeps the, the limbs of medicine paid relatively stable for, through 2019, at which point they start favoring um, those physicians who join into alternative payment models through a bonus system. And then subsequently in 2026, they actually have two completely separate conversion factors that go up on a, a different inflationary rate through 2026 and beyond um, that will pay alternative payment models more favorably than fee-for-service medicine. So I, you know, I think that's quite striking, and I think it's a roadmap 
um, for, for how our payment process is going to work over the next 10 years. It does provide stability for fee-for-service for the next 10 years because um, we did have a lot of uncertainty on whether that kind of system was, a te- was something that you could even remain in. Um, but at the same time, it provides motivation to turn into, you know, to, to start joining and participating in alternative payment models. Um, on the fee-for-service side in MACRA, they certainly ramp up the quality programs. They consolidated the quality programs that we traditionally know as physician quality reporting system, meaningful use, and value modifier into something called a MIPS-type payment program, which stands for Merit-Based um, Incentive Payments. Um, those traditional um, programs such as PQRS, MU, and value modifier still remain around. They do change names into um, quality, resource use, and meaningful use actually stays the same. Added into this MIPS-type quality program at payment system is a new um, clinical practice improvement um, metric um, that, that really um, is used, basically is, is there to use all the other quality programs to try to make your practice better instead of just reporting into these systems as a, in a mundane fashion without any feedback loop. It kind of completes the feedback loop in improving your quality as a practice or a group or, or even as an individual physician. Another interesting clause that was put in MACRA is that um, by 2016, actually November 1st of 2016, which is basically when the final rule for Medicare Physician Fee Service will be published, they have a, a suggestion that specialty physicians and specialty societies submit um, criteria for physician-focused payment models, uh, specifically regarding specialists. Um, they would like you know, ideas of how these would work, and they would like them submitted to the Health and Human Service Secretary by November 1st of 2016, again, in keeping with their, their uh, you know, their push to reform medicine into an alternate payment model type system. Swinging back to Geraldine and now into the substance of why we're here today, I wonder, Geraldine, if I can give you a broad-based question and just have you tackle it as you see fit. We, we mentioned right at the outset that Sylvia Burwell published her comment in January in the New England Journal, titling it, Setting Value-Based Payment Goals, HHS Efforts to Improve U.S. Healthcare. It's a pretty clear title about what the article contains. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little about the agency, HHS, who Sylvia Burwell is, and if you would do that uh, as a first step before telling us about uh, her article and what we might have said about in an hour review. Sure. So um, HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, and um, Sylvia Burwell, as you all know, replaced Kathleen Sebelius um, last year. And Kathleen Sebelius um, was a, a political appointee, obviously, um, had been the governor of Kansas, and really, I think, never quite recovered from the debacle of the launch of healthcare.gov, which was the federal healthcare marketplace for the federal exchange. And Sylvia Burwell, I think, is a very different animal. She's a career bureaucrat, came from the Office of Management and Budget, um, you know, and really regarded as as effective. And CMS has been the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services um, who administer the Medicare program, I think, have been really stretched by the Affordable Care Act implementation. The ACO program, again, the, the, the problems with the exchange have really, I think, uh, taken a lot of time and effort for them. So Secretary Burwell's clear statement on this accelerated transition to value, 
I think really attempts to to draw a line on this transition from volume to value and start to put some structure around it. Um, that said, she's been very clear. If you in the article is very clear on the targets, um, but pretty loose on the specifics. And and I think that that's probably what we need at this point. Um, the Accountable Care Organization program, the Medicare Shared Savings uh, Program, which is actually what it's called in the legislation has lost some critical early participants and in a in a new rule that came out at the end of 2014 has really loosened up considerably because I think there was a recognition that the very prescriptive structure was just not workable for many organizations and I I sense a shift that says you know we'll tell you what we want you to get to in terms of targets, but we'll let you come to us and, and specifically relevant for us, we'll let specialties come to us and tell us what does value mean for you. And, you know, the, the parallel program to uh, the secretary's statement and article, which is the learning network that CMS has set up in conjunction with provider groups, in conjunction with private payers, I think is really looking for the specifics to come from the delivery community as opposed to coming from the payer and the federal agency. So that's a fantastic answer, Geraldine, but I, I want to highlight a point that while I think it is uh, both wise and likely something we ought to appreciate that this is being directed back to the specialty societies to come up with perhaps more thoughtful approaches to providing our specialty care. In in the article, and I believe in her belief system, and I think this is supported by the macro, we should not understate the amazing tectonic, I think was the word you used before, shift of uh, the payment structure in the relative near term. So, in fact, if I remember correctly, the expectation is that by 2018, which is not a long time away, 50% of Medicare payments should be in the form of an alternative payment model. That is a stunning shift from where we are now. Policy wonks could argue about, does that mean 50% of dollars, 50% of codes, meaning there's, there's some give, I think, in that number. But with everything we've seen, the clear intention and reality that we're going to be shifting to these alternative payment models, I think is something that practitioners today really need to get their arms around. Yes, and, and you know, one of the things that as we as a specialty look at where we are going to um, stake our flag in terms of what we do around value, you know, I think that, that you know, whether existing programs qualify, you know, and I think that some of the things that are already legislated for us, clinical decision support, the new lung cancer screening program that will go, that's going into effect this year, which, you know, I see as an entirely value-based program, as you start to think about how you make up that 90% number that the secretary has, has set us as a target for the end of 2018, the question of whether we are going to have to invent entirely new things for all of those is, I, I think, is, is a very relevant one. You know, Sylvia Burwell is ex-McKinsey, and you could certainly make be a little bit facetious and say that, like any good consultant, she has thrown at us what we should do and then left us to figure out how we're actually going to get that done. If you don't mind, I'd like to add something that I think is very important for the listenership. Um, one is that, you know, Burwell did make these comments prior to MACRA. I think um, possibly she would have expanded the horizon for alternative payment models if she knew MACRA was coming, because I think MACRA does 
slow the transition to alternative payment models. Although it absolutely supports alternative payment models, it does slow the transition. But on the other side of the coin, the fee-for-service model, the quality programs are quite intense in MACRA, and that um, registries, especially the qualified clinical data registries at the Medicare supports are going to become a big part of our life, especially if you stay in fee-for-service medicine. And it's definitely um, in the best interest of, of physicians to get together and form these registries of what they think quality are, get them approved by Medicare as a qualified clinical data registry, and start participating in, in them. So as long as they're in fee-for-service, they can meet this compliance with this new merit-based incentive payment system. So that's a great point, and I think I would follow it with two comments. Uh, the first is, I think, Greg, that you're right, MACRA does slow it, but I, I would make the point that it's sort of like when do you adopt meaningful use or when do you uh, eat your, your spinach. Uh, you could argue that the longer one delays uh, transitioning, at least in their own mind as a practitioner from fee-for-service to value-based, the longer it will take for you to get into the highly incentivized APM universe, and it is not clear to me, and this is in part because I'm probably not, you know, sufficiently skilled to read it, but it's not clear to me that those uh, changes don't compound for the rest of one's career, so that if you, let's say, instead of beginning your transition in 2017, begin in 2020, that you are not suffering differences in the conversion factor, differences related to what your bonuses were in years prior. So I, I agree that the delay is in some ways uh, uh, strongly supportive of fee-for-service, and it's probably now true that fee-for-service in one way or another, discounted or not, is embedded in the system for at least the next 10 years. That was likely always in some way going to be the case. I think the point that I'd circle back to is that with these macro trends pushing in that direction, uh, it will become increasingly costly to stay in that fee-for-service environment. The second point I would just make is that there's lots of numbers being uh, thrown around, and it is confusing because the terms all sound like each other. In uh, Burwell's uh, original January article, she talked about having 85% of all Medicare fee-for-service payments tied to quality or value by 2016 and 90% tied, I think, by 2018. Uh, in terms of completely switching to alternative payment models, that's where the 50% uh, by 2018 had come in, though I agree uh, that number would likely need to be tempered by the macro, but clearly the macro trend is still there. Um, one of the value-based approaches is the bundled payment for Care Improvement Initiative, BPCI uh, for short. And there was a reason we devoted a whole article to this particular, you know, one of many value-based approaches, and it is that they focused on stroke as one of their diagnoses. Greg, I'm wondering if you could tell us about BPCI. Sure, Josh. So I, I think it's important for the, the listeners to understand that most of the um, large reform projects for APMs coming out of Medicare actually come out of something called the Innovation Center. The Innovation Center was actually um, started under the uh, Affordable Care Act. It was granted $10 billion to, you know, basically start pilot projects of reform. It's to date um, 
actually spent about 20% of that $10 billion. Um, BPCI is actually one of the initiatives to come out of the Innovation Center. And the thought behind it was that Medicare traditionally makes separate payments for, to, to providers for each individual, individual service that they provide to patients. Um, this kind of approach can lead to pretty fragmented care, um, minimal coordination across care. So they thought it was probably an inefficient way to pay providers. In the bundled payment type uh, model, they provide a single bundled payment for multiple physicians in hospitals um, for specific conditions. And the idea is that if you're only getting one set bundle, that you'll do everything you can to save on efficiencies. Or you'll, you'll create efficiencies in your system to save money but still provide uh, you know, quality care. There are also quality metrics tied to these programs, so you have to ma maintain quality but reduce cost at the same time. Um, there were four different models that are being studied by the Innovation Center. There's retrospective acute care hospital stay only. There was a retrospective acute care hospital stay plus acute um, post-acute care there's retrospective post-acute care only. And finally, the fourth model was acute care hospital stay only. Most hospitals in the country that participated in this participated under Model 2 because they had significant integration with a post-acute care um, provider. Only 18 centers actually signed up for Model 4, which actually um, was the most significant for anybody who still receives fee-for-service as a physician because this um, model actually required physicians to forego their payments or forego billing Medicare and accept um, the bundle payment even if you're a private practice or a fee-for-service physician. The results of this program are really, it's too early to tell. Um, we, we really don't know how it's been faring. Um, certainly, some of the models did not, were not able to recruit very many hospitals. For example, Model 4 only had 17 or 18 hospitals together. There were a number of episodes of care they were studying, I think 48 in total. And um, for the specific listenership, they should know that one of the episodes was certainly stroke. Um, they, they studied pretty much all the major DRGs in stroke um, and were, were offering bundled payments up, you know, up front for you to manage stroke care in those, in those settings. And I think that that's uh, worth repeating and focusing on at least uh, if you're uh, a listener, uh, in a bundled world, our uh, circumstances change fairly dramatically, actually. And I mean, I think that's true in all value-based uh, models. But I, I think the fact that the bundle looked at stroke or stroke was looked at as a possible diagnosis for bundle, depending on which of those models, one through four, we might need to line up next to rehab to figure out what portion of the uh, proceeds should be divided for rehab care, which could be weeks, or for the four hours somebody spends in the interventional suite. In some of the models, you can combine technical and professional fees. So I think it really becomes quite complicated, but also important for us to realize that this is being studied right now. And while the early results are unclear and probably even uh, fair to say a little bit of a mess, this is an idea that's out there, and I mean ready to go into practice. So it's something that really has the potential to impact us. And per the broader point of all of these articles on this podcast, whether it's this or what uh, I'm going to ask Geraldine about in a second, these models, whether it's one form or another or they morph into even something else, are likely how we will be defining a lot of our care 
in the relatively near term. So, Geraldine, perhaps a more uh, commonly used term, at least in 2015, or something people are more aware of, is the idea of accountable care organizations. So, uh, since we just spoke about the bundled payment initiative, I, I would ask you, uh, what is accountable care, and, and how does it differ from the bundled payment initiative that Greg just spoke about? Thanks, Josh. And um, so, you know, the, the words accountable care, the term accountable care organization was actually defined well before the Affordable Care Act by Elliot Fisher from Dartmouth. And the notion is that if you if you bring together a group of providers and ask them to take on the management of a population and allow them to share in any savings if they do that in a more cost-effective way, but also require them to meet certain quality metrics that you can achieve the triple aim of healthcare reform. You can improve population health, you can improve the experience of care, and you can also reduce costs. Um, as I said earlier, Medicare calls accountable care their shared savings program. And the idea is it's, it's essentially a bundled payment. It's just a bigger bundled payment um, as Medicare has crafted it. And now many private payers, it takes care of a certain number of, of people, of lives, or whatever you want to call them, or of patients. And the group of providers that sometimes includes a hospital system but doesn't have to agrees, as I said, to take on the management of that population for a time period. Typically, it's managed every year. And if they meet certain quality metrics, um, they can then qualify for any savings. And there are various models. And I think we outline these quite nicely in our paper. Um, if you decide to take more risk, um, you can potentially get more upside. What we found in the way this program has rolled out is that most provider systems aren't that comfortable with taking the downside risk. The big wild card in the uh, certainly in the Medicare shared savings program is that the one group that doesn't really have skin in the game is the patient. Patients are still able to get their care and get whatever care they, they, they feel they need. So the ability of providers and provider groups to reduce utilization and reduce costs is somewhat limited because patients have been, have been left that freedom to pursue uh, whatever care they feel that they need. Um, and I think that was probably quite an important part of actually getting the uh, getting the concept legislated. Um, but you know, it's it's essentially a bundled payment, just a bigger one, and not condition specific. That is such a clear answer to a complicated problem, and I'm really glad you highlighted, Geraldine, the fact that the patient continues to have this type of uh, flexibility. In fact, uh, there are accountable programs where patients almost freely use centers that are not participating in the risk share model and the, the fact of the matter is those are, are going to be doomed to failure because you really can't have a risk shared model where people are picking and choosing where they want to have their care. It's hard enough to get the statistics right in any population beforehand, particularly in a broad population, but to, to have that situation where there are still uh, such limited demands based on on the patient is likely a prescription to not succeed. Greg, one of the the interesting permutations of accountable care is this idea of specialty driven accountable care. I'd ask you to tell us about that. What else has been tried? What works? And and what you think maybe some red flags are. 
Sure. So the, the structure of the, the ACOs that um, have been launched by the Innovation Center is, is quite interesting. There are three programs actually under the general concept of ACOs that are mainly for primary care doctors, and they start from the organizations that have the least infrastructure and needed the most money, and that's in the advanced payment model ACOs. Basically, these are organizations that have little infrastructure, and they get money monthly and yearly as um, infrastructure money to help build themselves up. They're usually generally in rural areas. There's the Medicare Shared Savings Program, which are centers that had quite a bit of coordinated care, but, but not as quite enough to start taking significant risk up front. And then there were the pioneer ACO model, um, which is organizations that had lots and lots of structure and were ready to go ahead and start the, the full-blown type of ACO model. Aside from those, there are there is one Medicare-sponsored specialty-specific ACO, or at least it operates like a specialty-specific ACO, and that was the Comprehensive End-Stage Renal Disease, Renal Disease Care Initiative. This initiative actually um, has was was formulated in 2013, but it actually has just launched, I think, in January of 2015. So we have no data yet, but it really. Um, is concentrating on end-stage renal disease where they coordinate care, they have quality metrics. It really functions exactly like an, an accountable care organization. Now, on the private side, there certainly has been oncology ACOs. There have been several in Florida that have launched through private payers. Um, the results for many of these ACOs are still out. Um, we don't know. Theoretically, you would think that specialty-specific ACOs would be great at the onset and get specialists involved, which has been a huge sticking point for all alternative payment models is specialty involvement. So they're a great um, gap um, you know, cover for, for specialists, but I think as the entire system matures, you would expect them to merge into larger or you know, more comprehensive ACOs. Um, as, you know, covering the whole population. You know, population health is really kind of a goal of these ACOs. And when you're specialty-specific, it can be, you know, a difficult task. Um, the results of what we know from the, the, the more, you know, more traditional ACOs, specifically the Pioneer ACO program, have been mixed, although um, a recent New England Journal of Medicine article shed some light on um, actually why they have been mixed. Um, originally, there was a, a JAMA article from 2014 that um, reviewed the results of the Pioneer ACO program for the first two years. And, and really, um, the results were, were quite mixed. Um, 13 of the programs of the original 32 Pioneer ACOs actually dropped out because they had losses. Uh, now, what's interesting is a recent New England Journal of Medicine article actually looked at all 32 original Pioneer programs, including the 13 that have dropped out, and using different accounting principles and taking into account regional market variances, they were able to show that all the ACOs, even the ones that dropped out and supposedly lost money, were actually successful. So it just goes to show that the accounting principles behind these ACOs are quite complex and are, are not ready for prime time and haven't quite been figured out. Um, but using some new accounting standards, there may actually be benefit to every one of them that, um, that were studied and, and that even the ones that dropped out and were not deemed financially successful. You closed by saying that the New England Journal recently published an article, and it was a great article, and it stood in distinction to previous analyses, which, which says that even the policymakers and the most sophisticated analysts are still having trouble figuring out how these are working, which is very scary to folks that need to implement these systems in their practice. And you pointed out, I think correctly, that specialists have 
in many ways not participated in many of the ACOs, and in some ways that has been a very rational uh, decision. The challenge, I think, though, is that the policy is still moving forward, independent of whether or not people know the results or uh, even know how to interpret the results. I mean, we're talking about that with both PPCI and accountable care. And it is it is quite possible that should specialists not uh, get more involved as the ACOs or the bundled payments mature, other people who are not specialists may be much more ahead of the game in terms of the decision-making and recommendations of how things ought to be allocated in those models. It's one of the reasons I think it's so critical that uh, the community, and in this case the neurointerventional community, but it really uh, can apply to the broader neuroradiology community, radiology community, neurosurgery community needs to uh, uh, embrace uh, at least understanding what what's coming because I do think in many ways it's going to be uh, really part of our collective future. I, I, I would ask either of you if you have any concluding uh, remarks that you'd like to make before we sign off. So Josh, this is Geraldine, and thank you again for the opportunity to be part of this. I think that, you know, what we've heard in the discussion today is that while fee-for-service is definitely something that we're theoretically trying to move away from, for us as specialists, in the short term, making sure that the building blocks of fee-for-service, the RVU system for all its flaws and faults, making sure that that's as robust as possible continues to be important because of how we are currently functioning and will function in the short term in these accountable care models, whether they're large or smaller. So that's, I think that's an important effort. But I think for us to make sure that the V in RVU, that value word, is as clearly articulated in terms of what we offer, as clearly as articulated as possible, I think that's going to be a very important task for us going forward. As people get their surveys that come from the AMA RUC uh, process, uh, please make sure to, to fill them out because Geraldine is absolutely on point. This is still a critical uh, part of how we value our professional efforts, and uh, I wouldn't want the focus on value to, to give the sense that those surveys are any less important. Going along with exactly what you two were, were, were discussing, quality is the key word here, and I think even if you remain in fee-for-service in the near future, it's still extremely important for the specialists and societies to get involved in quality metrics and define quality. This will make the transition to alternative payment models much easier, and it will also allow you to be successful in the short term in fee-for-service, but that, that is absolutely imperative that the specialty societies define quality metrics via registries or comparative effectiveness research, um, because that is the future, is proving that the, the, the therapy or the care that you're giving is effective and especially cost-effective. So that's, that's imperative for the societies to participate in. That's a terrific uh, jumping point as well, Greg, for me to give a little plug to an SNIS-related uh, effort, the NVQI uh, registry, which accomplishes many of those goals that you laid out. Well, I think this podcast has had it all. We've obviously had phenomenal discussions and Dr. Geraldine McGinty and Dr. Greg Nicola. We have fantastic uh, 
substrate materials for us to look at. I, I have to say that uh, it's probably clear to the audience why I enjoy spending time with Geraldine and Greg. I learn so much when I interact with them, and I hope the uh, audience found it as enjoyable to spend this time with them as I did myself. Saying goodbye, thank you so much.